Blog Talk Radio. And good morning and welcome to the Bless You Boys podcast for Saturday, April the 18th, 2015. I'm your host, Hook Slide. Glad you could join me for the next 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes or so, as we recap this last week in Tigers baseball. And what a week it's been. Uh, the boys just continue to steamroll the competition. Aside from the one loss in Pittsburgh this week, the Tigers are sitting at a 9-1 and record. I heard someone say yesterday that that's uh, only the third time in history that's happened, starting out 9-1 and the other two times being the 1984 team and the 1968 team, so we know what that means, right? World Series bound, maybe too early to say. For our first-time listeners, the Bless You Boys podcast is a feature of the Bless You Boys website. That's SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. You can find us on the web at www.blessyouboys.com, on Twitter, at Bless You Boys, and on Facebook, just search for Bless You Boys and you will find us there. All right, joining me in the virtual studio today, my good friend Ryan Schuling, host of the WBBL Morning Show here in Grand Rapids on 107.3, Monday through Friday, 6 to 9 a.m. And as of this year, he's also providing color commentary for the West Michigan Whitecaps. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Hook. Good to be with you on this beautiful Saturday. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of tit for tat. I know you've had me on your show a couple of times, and I said, you know, we got to get Ryan on and talk about the Tigers, talk about the Whitecaps, so I'm real glad you could make it. I am glad, too, and it's a much easier timetable what we're dealing with here at 10 in the morning. <laughs> that is correct. Yes, yeah, in the past, I know when you've had me on the show, it's had to be before 9 a.m., so that's, that's a little bit of a stretch, but, you know, always a good time. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts. Uh, like I said, just starting out this year, you're providing color commentary for the Whitecaps, and uh wanted to just kind of get your thoughts on your experience in the booth so far. Really exciting time, Hook. I mean, Dan Hasty is a friend of mine for many years now. Uh, I used to be the play-by-play announcer for Central Michigan up there, football, basketball, baseball, and softball. And while I was there, uh, Dan was an undergrad student, kind of earning his way up, and he was always an overachiever, a guy that would go out and – try to look for the first opportunity that he got to kind of get in the booth and get that hands-on experience. And I knew from a while back now, going back to say 2007 or so, that given the opportunity, this is a guy that would probably rise pretty fast. And he has. I mean, he had two years there with Great Lakes Loons in 07-08. I was with the Loons in 09. He would eventually find his way to Traverse City with the Beach Bums and the Frontier League Independent League ball up there. And that's a that's a rough grind up there. I mean, you never know what you're going to get in independent league ball as opposed to affiliated ball. And I think that really allowed him to kind of uh, cut his IT. And then by the time this opportunity came around West Michigan for him, he was the pre-halftime post-game host of the Detroit Lions uh, radio network coverage on 97.1, the ticket in Detroit. So, I mean, this guy who had really built a good catalog and a resume of material 
and experience to be ready for this uh, position to hit the ground running, so to speak. And we are both, I think, equally excited to be paired up with one another in the booth. I mean, here's somebody and myself that can come in and just kind of steady the ship for him at home games, give him a breather when he needs it. And, you know, I'll be calling innings three, four, and five on the play-by-play side and then providing the color analysis, as you said, uh, for the rest of the games. And so far it's been great. We've had a lot of fun in the booth. We want to keep it light. I mean, we talk about Class A baseball. Yeah, it's professional ball, and you want to see these guys develop, and you want to see the team win. But at the same time, these are really their formative years, and it's an exciting time to follow these players because they're they're in a stage of their development where they're still very much learning. They're going to make mistakes. And I think Dan's got the perfect kind of personality and and tenor in terms of his delivery to communicate that clearly and and not come down too hard on the guys. I think, you know, you have this tendency maybe to kind of point out flaws, but a lot of times here you just got to kind of consider the level for what it is. And like last night, the Whitecaps, they were leading three to one. They end up losing it in the eighth and ninth innings with two and one run innings and committing three errors in the process. That's going to happen in minor league baseball. You're going to see a lot more of those kind of flaws in their game as they uh, go up through the ranks and try to winnow it down. And then last night, attending the Toledo Mudhens, you can see the difference in terms of levels of play and how these guys are coming along. It's it's fun when you take a name, let's just say uh, like Witten Bernard, for instance, who was cut uh, not that long ago by the San Diego Padres, his hometown team. He tells me in an interview on my morning show that he breaks down crying in his car because he thought the dream was over. Well, he gets a call from the Tigers and an invitation to Lakeland. And as many Whitecaps fans know, that's where it turned the corner. He became the Midwest League MVP a year ago in center field, and he's part of their depth in the organization right now at AA Erie. So it's just a fun story to tell, and I'm glad I'm getting a chance to tell it with Dan. Yeah, it's definitely a fun experience to see all that up close and kind of get the uh, the early breaking story on some of these guys. And, in fact, you were just telling me before the show that you were able to catch a, a Mud Hens game uh, just yesterday. And so you now you've seen the Mud Hens, you've seen some of the Whitecaps. Uh, tell me what you think now is uh, you know, who's standing out right now as a potential rising star from either one of those rosters. Well, when you go back, you mentioned in your intro hook about the 68 Tigers, the 84 Tigers, and how teams are built, and it really hasn't changed over, say, the last 50 years or so. That would include the 68 Tigers in terms of how you build an organization through depth, through a minor league system that's up the middle, whether that be your center fielder, keystone combination, second base, shortstop, catcher, obviously pitching, but center field is a position that really stands out to me right now in the Tigers organization because they make the trade of Devin Travis to Toronto for Anthony Ghost. We've seen how well that's gone in a platoon with Rajay Davis, and that'll be the case going forward for some time. I think Ghost is still very young. That said, Daniel Fields, the center fielder, goes four for five last night. He's hitting 300 and for Toledo. That's, of course, the son of Bruce Fields, the former manager of West Michigan, and he provides depth in the organization. You've got Winton Bernard, as I just mentioned, in double-A Erie, and now you've got a first-round draft pick and Derek Hill coming up through the rings, and I like what I saw early from him. Unfortunately, he's been sidelined for the time being with a quad injury, but it doesn't seem to be overly serious. They're just being very, very cautious with him, obviously because of his draft status. They don't want to push it. There's no need to do that. But when you just look at the ladder right there in center field, going from Ghosts on down to Fields to Witten Bernard and now Derek Hill, I mean, that is a real, truly impressive stockpile of talent in a position that provides you not only depth in case injuries happen, but also trade shifts. And that's primarily what uh, Dave Dabrowski has used his minor league system for in the past, particularly when it comes to pitching. But now he's getting some of that along the same lines as the positional players we're building in terms of depth in the Tiger system. 
And it's good that you mentioned pitching there. That's always been kind of a strong point. Obviously, the Tigers like to draft, uh, you know, really stock heavily in the pitching. And, of course, uh, the Whitecaps being sort of the first level of that, we always get a really good crop of pitchers every year. Uh, what have you seen so far from the pitching staff here in West Michigan? Well, Spencer Turnbull is a guy, obviously, that's going to raise some eyebrows, turn some heads in terms of his draft status of being a second-round pick. And he's gotten off to a very good start. His first two starts, 3.27 ERA, small sample size, but he's showing the goods. He's got to get his control uh, kind of harnessed a little bit. He has issued five walks and hit a couple of batters over 11 innings. But this guy, you just kind of see that it factor about him. And it's a pitcher like Spencer Turnbull. And going back a year ago, Jonathan Crawford, even Rick Porcello, when you look at, you know, it doesn't hurt to trade a starting pitcher. Everybody still talks about the Doug Fister trade and how much damage that did. And it did. And it was not a good return on that particular trade. But you're not going to win 100% of your trades. Dave Dabrowski wins a lot more than he loses in those deals. And he was able to kind of cobble together and come out of that with Robbie Ray going to Arizona and now Shane Green coming over. And you see what happens with Shane Green. He has taken that mantle of the fourth starting position in the rotation from Rick Porcello, and I think taken it to an, another level. His stuff's nastier. Uh, he's got more strikeout potential. He gets a lot of ground balls induced. He'll pitch to contact. He'll keep his uh, pitch count down. We've even seen Alfredo Simon, who is involved in that trade, including Crawford and Suarez. He can come in and be a fifth starter. What it proves is that starting pitching, while it's very important, and you love to have a front-end guy like, say, David Price, and maybe re-sign him. You hate to lose a Max Scherzer, but you look at the dollars required. It can be replenished. David Dabrowski has shown that he can do that. He has done that. And in so doing, I think the trade, Porcello going to the Red Sox, they get not only Yolanda Cespedes, but two Alex Wilson pitchers and Spire as well with West Michigan in a package deal that I think was a slam dunk for the Tigers. You've seen what Cespedes brings to the lineup. I'd love to see the Tigers extend him long-term. And maybe this is my bias coming through as a former outfielder. I think it's a lot harder to find a true four- or even five-tool outfielder like Ioannis Cespedes who can hit for power, who gives you speed on base test, who has a cannon for an arm, who has good defensive instincts, who gives you really everything in a total package. And that's that as a left fielder, which traditionally is the weakest of the three defensive positions in the outfield, I would much rather they extend a Yohannes Cespedes than say what Boston did with Rick Porcello, which, you know, love Rick, but he's a middling of the rotation type starter. He'll cap out possibly on an average team as a number two starter. And I just think that more along the lines of what Boston's looking for, they were desperate for starting pitching, and he's going to be maybe their front-end guy ahead of even Clay Buckholes. Tigers aren't built like that, and I do believe the trade was a very, very good one for Detroit. Yes, and it certainly seems like Shane Green has stepped up into that role and kind of replaced, uh, you know, he's the new Rick Porcello in that sense. A lot of similarities there. And um, it's funny you mentioned that uh, the Doug Fister trade finally seems to have, you know, yielded some fruit. So maybe we can finally relax a little bit. I mean, it, like you said, it was in a great trade to begin with, but uh, maybe it's uh, Dombrowski has salvaged something of his reputation by converting that trade into uh, into Shane Green. We're talking with Ryan Schuling here on the Bless You Boys podcast. Ryan's the host of the WBBL Morning Show here in Grand Rapids and also the color commentary and uh, analyst for the West Michigan Whitecaps. Uh, let's kind of shift full gear here and talk about the Tigers. Uh, I was going to mention to you that after the, uh, the the sweep by the Baltimore Orioles last year and going into the offseason, at Bless You Boys, we ran uh, an approval rating poll on Brad Osmus. Uh, just to ask our audience, you know, what they thought of his job in 2014, and he got a 65% approval rating. Uh, we ran the poll again just this week, and he's sitting at about 92%. Uh, 
So obviously the fans are feeling a little better about Osmus this year. Obviously it's early on, but the question is, uh, Ryan, do you think he's a different manager this year than he was last year? And if so, is, is he better? Is he worse? Has he learned anything from last year? I think he's definitely learned a lot. You go through a full season as a major league manager and having done it for the first time, there were going to be growing pains. And when I say for the first time, I mean at any level. He had not been a manager in the minor leagues. He had not been more than maybe a consultant scout along those sort of lines with the Dodgers before that. He wasn't on the bench in an everyday capacity. That brings with it a totally different perspective. And I've worked in the minor leagues. I've worked with Pat Kelly, who's a legendary manager in the red system. He has managed every level of Major League Baseball. He's been a coach at the Major League level. And the things that I learned from him are a lot of the same things that I think Brad Ausmus maybe learned on the fly. And certainly he took notes and cues from Jim Leland, from Gene Lamont. That's to be understood. But what I think Brad brings to the table that he is instituting more and more now as his own brand of baseball is a more kind of cerebral, analytic approach a guy that thinks one step ahead, he's still getting there. I think there are some times when he's reacting rather than acting, and he needs to trust his instincts more. I think all the tools are there in terms of what he brings to the table to be a great manager. I would like to see him continue to be aggressive on the base pass, to press the defense, uh, to have guys with the help of Wally Joyner hit the opposite way, situational hitting, being a smart batter in the batter's box, working the count, getting deep into the pitch count for pitchers and driving them out of the games early and getting to the bullpen. I mean, this is all a systemic approach that I think they got away from. When you look back at last year, Hook, they started 27-12. and 12. And why was that? Because we saw a lot of the brand of baseball that Brad Ausmus, I thought, was going to institute. And then what we saw after that, you saw a lot of Joe Nathan blowing up. That's a big reason for some of the failures. Not all of it, though. The bullpen entire was not good. And then I think he fell into some of the same traps and maybe a template of comfort zone that Jim Leland, Gene Lamont were providing for him and not trusting his true instincts and having these predetermined roles. And this is my biggest beef with him, and I hope that he's getting away from it, is Joe Nathan's our ninth inning guy, Jabba Chamberlain's our eighth inning guy, and never shall that be shaken, questioned. I don't want to upset the balance or the chemistry of the team or erode the confidence of these two guys. Well, the problem with that is, a winning baseball team, it's more about just the, the feelings of two individual players. You've got to just have the entire approach across the board of, I'm going to put the guys on the field and on the mound who give us the best chance to win in any given situation. And no player should have a problem with that. If Joe Nathan's making $10 million for this season, that does not predetermine that he's automatically the closer. If Joaquin Soria comes in, who's being handsomely paid as well, I might add, and does the type of job he's doing in the closer's role and earns it and keeps it, that should not be taken away from him. You have to run a meritocracy as a manager. It's the only way you're going to keep respect with your players. Now, I think a huge part of that 65% approval rating, which really is not all that high when you think about it, uh, that Brad Austin has picked up from our, our reading audience last year, had a lot to do with the way that he managed the bullpen, and exactly for the reasons that you just mentioned, the, the very kind of by rote, by formula, by flow chart approach. Uh, you know, who's my seventh inning guy? Who's my eighth inning guy? And just sort of following that slavishly. Um, a big part of that, though, as you said, was the fact that they had Joe Nathan in the closer role and he could not get the job done. And so here we are now with Joe Nathan on the disabled list. And that's been kind of a breath of fresh air because we get to see Joaquin Soria do his thing in the closer role. But obviously, Ryan, 
Joe Nathan's not going to be on the disabled list for the rest of the season. In fact, I've heard reports that he's making a speedy recovery. And so the inevitability is he's going to be back on the mound. Um, I want to kind of take a different approach because we all know the reasons why he shouldn't be out there pitching in the ninth inning or in those high leverage situations. But what if we step out of that mold for a second and look at it from the more the business side? What are the reasons for keeping him around? Great question. I mean, the investment's been made. We've all made bad investments in our past, whether that be uh, on the financial side or perhaps on the personal side or the professional side. There's a saying, you know, throwing good money after bad. And in this case, I think instilling him in a role where he's already proven to be largely a failure over the last full calendar year, and that included the spring, which you don't want to read too much in the spring statistics for most guys, but when you're coming off of the rough year that Nathan had, you're looking for something, some basis in the spring that leads you to believe that 2015 would be any different from 2014. When you're lacking that evidence, and Joaquin Soria was lights out in the spring, and he's been lights out to this point, the incentive for change there is nil. And two things would need to happen, in my mind, for the closer's role to be uh, fairly handed back to Joe Nathan. One, Joaquin Soria would have to lose it. Two, Joe Nathan would have to win it. Those two things would need to happen. Soria struggles, Nathan dominates. And maybe like you're saying, it's a seventh inning role, it's an eighth inning role. I think I'd like to see the manager, and maybe it's Joe Madden, that's forward-thinking enough to realize that it's not just the final three outs. And I've heard from plenty of managers, and Pat Kelly, who I mentioned earlier, who I trust and respect and admire more than anybody in minor league baseball. He's currently in Pensacola with the Blue Wahoos and the Reds organization. He does say that psychologically there's something about those last three outs that are tougher than any of the other outs in the game. That can be. But you can't tell me that if you're facing, let's say, three, four, five in the order in the eighth inning, that those are not harder outs to get than facing the subsequent six, seven, eight hitters in the ninth inning. Not just because it's the ninth inning should that therefore uh, dictate that you have your best supposed relief pitcher in that particular role in that particular inning. I'd like to see a manager who kind of flies more on a case-by-case basis and says, hey, look, we got the heart of the order come at the eighth. Guess what? I'm going Soria here. And then maybe have Nathan in the ninth or have Al Albuquerque or have Tom Gorzolani. Uh, Shuffle the deck a little bit. I think they want to get into a routine where there's comfort. It's a day-to-day thing. Uh, Brad Osmus, I think, again, fell into this trap last year. Guys getting comfortable with their role. Jabba knew he had the eighth. Joe knew he had the ninth. But I don't know that that's a good thing necessarily. I think guys can get complacent just assuming that these roles are going to be theirs without really having to earn it or keep them. You have to have this be a constant competition. And I'd love to see it, like I said again, your best pitchers in a given situation pitching against the best hitters in the lineup, whether that be the seventh, the eighth, or the ninth inning late. Yeah, and I absolutely love that approach and agree with you on that, that the best pitcher on the team should absolutely be the one handling the highest leverage inning uh, which is not always the ninth, as you pointed out. You right. You be facing seven, eight, nine. Uh, in fact, Joe Nathan's best uh, outings, best stats last year were in the ninth inning when he was facing seven, eight, nine, with at least a, a mm-hmm. two-run lead. So going forward, with obviously Nathan's coming back. He's going to pitch. Where would you slot him at this point? I wouldn't slot him anywhere. I mean, I, I go situationally. Maybe if you had three right-handers coming up, uh, try to make the most of the matchup that you had. Uh, you're right. He, he's on the roster. You're paying him $10 million. He is the closer, at least by appointment last year. Uh, you hate to, I don't know, 
insult him, I guess. They're really trying to coddle his confidence in the spring by reemphasizing that he is the closer. Heck, they're even still saying that now, Hook, that, the, you know, for, that Joaquin Story is the interim closer. I heard Mario say on one of the telecasts, made me want to throw stuff across my living room. I mean, what is interim about the performance he's delivering? That's like saying that Lou Gehrig was the interim first baseman. Until Wally Pipp gets back healthy, we're going to go with this Gehrig kid. But then it's Pipp's job. We're giving it right back. Why would you do that? It's, for, right. for Nathan at this point, it's a case of having to work him back in. How many pitches can he throw before he starts kind of falling off the table? Is it 10 pitches? Is it 11? Can you go one batter? I mean, he should be willing to embrace any role that helps the team win. And unfortunately, we've seen an attitude from him, whether it's directed at the fans or perhaps at the role itself, that kind of gives the, the appearance that he's the closer, he knows it, and he doesn't really care what anyone else thinks. That that's his job. That's what he was hired to do. I like that bravado and confidence if he backs it up with performance, but if he doesn't, then all that is is talk and bluster. And I think if he checks his ego at the door a little bit and comes in and just says, hey, look, use me however you want, Skip. I'm here to help the team win. That'd be a refreshing change from what we've seen. Sure, sure. And I go back to 2013 because obviously his 2014 performance very closely mirrored that of 2013's Jose Valverde early in the season. And we saw the Tigers in 2013 take the, the bold step of removing Jose Valverde from the closer role and sending him down to Toledo and eventually just letting him go. Now, obviously, the salary differences are huge. He was only getting, I think, a million or two million that year. Joe Nathan's getting closer to 10. They're not just going to DFA him and send him to Toledo. So assuming, Ryan, that he comes back and is promptly handed the closer job again just because he's the closer and he's got the salary and whatever else, how long, how many saves does he have to blow, do you figure, before that job is taken away? Ooh, another good question. What's that hard number? It's hard to tell. I think it's uh, how spectacularly does he implode in those blown save chances if it's just an overriding uh, kind of failure that you see. I don't think it would take more than two or three. If it's a nickel-dimer here or there, you could explain it away with a bad defensive play or a tough break or, you know, one bad pitch. You're going to hear a lot of that, and Tigers fans are going to get very frustrated, as I do as well. I share in that frustration. But you're right. They're going to give him every last opportunity to prove that he can contribute to this uh, roster. Now, you can go back not that long ago to a guy that actually wore the old English D and Jim Johnson he was brought on, you might recall, by the Oakland A's to be their closer at a very similar pay rate that the Tigers are paying Joe Nathan. He had a very good year in Baltimore. He was atrocious. And Oakland did not take very long before they decided, you know what, this is not worth it. It's a bad investment. We made a mistake. They cut ties to him. They were on the hook for the entire salary. But the A's moved in a different direction. And I admire Billy Bean for that. You, you admit that you make a mistake and you don't just dwell on it and try to force this decision into the ground to prove you were right or on some basis along those lines. Uh, the A's could have done that. They could have kept going back to Joe Johnson. He could have kept blowing saves and costing them games. We, we found this out, too. I mean, look, the last few years, Tigers have you know, kind of glided to the Central Division title. It has been a nip-tuck affair, whether it was – the Cleveland Indians, the Chicago White Sox, or last year, the Kansas City Royals. They won by one game. The games in April matter. I mean, I'm not here to say that a 9-1 and start guarantees anything. You mentioned the 68-84 Tigers. Well, thought got off the 9-1 and starts, too, and that's a pretty nice indicator of what might lie ahead. But these games do matter. It's a good thing they're 9-1. and You'd rather be 9-1 and than 1-9. and 
And the April games matter just as much in the standings as the ones in August and September. So to sit here and say, we're just going to go ahead and let Joe Nathan blow three, four, five games. Those are three, four, five games you're not going to be able to make up in September. So I would uh, prefer a zero-tolerance policy. What the Tigers might do, again, tied into him for $10 million, they're probably going to give him a pretty long leash at least to deliver some semblance of value in terms of what they invested. Yeah, I, I would probably tend to agree with you there. I, I think there is maybe a mentality or at least a feeling of, you know, you can afford to lose two or three games, you know, and still take the division. So they may give him that, you know, two or three game leash to see. But like, like you said, I would prefer kind of a zero zero tolerance policy or better yet, just let Soria keep doing what he's doing until, like you said, until he implodes, may that never be. And until then, let Joe Nathan kind of do mop up elsewhere. We're talking with uh, Ryan Schuling here on the Bless You Boys podcast. Ryan is the host of the WBBL Morning Show here in Grand Rapids on 107.3 and also the color analyst for the West Michigan Whitecaps. Ryan, let's talk about the bullpen as a whole. It still seems to be a bit of a weak spot. Of course, we haven't, you know, the starting pitching in the offense and the defense has been awesome so far. So we, it's almost rendered the bullpen irrelevant or redundant at this point. We haven't seen a whole lot of it. But just with the arms that are out there and the numbers that we know, it's still kind of a weak spot. The question is, Is can Dave Dombrowski afford to stand pat at this point and trust that the defense, offense, and starting pitching is going to continue the way it has been? Or does does Dave need to go out and move some pieces and uh, maybe secure some more arms? You know, it's such a, a fascinating start to the season along those lines. So in terms of the starting pitching that the Tigers have gotten, it has been unequaled. And this, again, is without Justin Verlander. They've been doing this with Price, Sanchez, Green, and Simon, and then coming back around, we saw David Price once again, brilliant yesterday, going toe-to-toe with Samarja, who was equally impressive through eight innings. You're not going to bank on this continuing in the starters' roles. You're going to need those middle innings guys at some point to deliver and give you big outs, give you three or even six outs. It still feels, Hook, like there are – there are a couple pieces maybe missing from this bullpen. And maybe that's Bruce Rondon, and maybe it's even Joe Nathan. But without those two, the Angel Nesbitt has come in, and he's been a solid arm in that pen. And Tom Gorzolani has done a very good job to this point. He hasn't uh, you know, cost you anything. I still love Al Albuquerque in, in a very prominent role in that bullpen. I'd like to see a lefty, and maybe that is Gorzolani, step up and be able to be a lockdown guy you can turn to in matchup situations against left-hand hitters, I have my issues with Ian Kroll, and Blaine Hardy's already blown up once this season. They're still searching for that. I, I could imagine a scenario where by the trade deadline, they go out and get a real solid left-hander in the bullpen, and that might include another right-handed arm as well. We'll have to see how it transpires. The interesting thing to this point, though, Hook, is they haven't really been tested along those lines. If it's, if it's relief work to this point, it's been a ninth-inning Joaquin Soria job or maybe a little bit of a bridge to get from the starting pitching to Soria. There's going to be that game, though, where the pitch counts up. We've already seen maybe one of those with Kyle Lobstein, and they were able to win that game. And now Lobstein's going to be turned to again with the absence of Verlander. He'll be missing his next start for yet a third time this season to start. So maybe that'll be a game to keep an eye on the next uh, Kyle Lobstein start. Yeah, that that game last Sunday against the Indians, I want to say, uh, I'm sorry, not Sunday, it was Saturday, a week ago today, uh, was mm-hmm. I think the first time I've seen where the bullpen was, you know, somewhat tested, uh, you know, and had to go for multiple innings. And that that was a little bit disconcerting because there was some kind of back and forth. They had the lead, they lost the lead. They got the lead, they lost the lead kind of situation. 
Yeah. And the thing that stuck out to me is that with the arms coming out of that bullpen, aside from Joaquin Soria, who's been lights out, who feels very, you know, he gives me a very comfortable feeling when he comes out. You can kind of relax, you know, crack the beer. Uh, <laughs> but none of those other arms kind of give me that, that same feeling of like, oh, good, here's Ian Kroll. I can trust this next inning is going to go smoothly. Who do you like out of that bullpen outside of Joaquin Soria? You know, the one or two names that you feel, okay, this guy's coming in. I can I can relax a little bit. Uh, relax, none of them. Uh, Sorry is the one guy, and I knew that once he got back healthy, and he is, uh, he's just a real steady force. He's a guy you want in the most clutch situation that the, the, the bullpen situation pre- presents itself. But I would say Albuquerque most days, if his stuff's on, this guy is lights out and cannot be touched. The problem is he struggles mightily with his command, and when that's off, he, he has a real issue with dialing it back in. Once he loses it, it's gone, never to return until maybe his next outing. And then he might come out and be fine. He's got a real Jekyll and Hyde quality. So I wouldn't relax when he's in the game, but he definitely has the high-end stuff to be able to dominate an inning. Um, you know, to this point, Gorzolani's been a success, but it's it's really early. He's only been, you know, in the uh, two games to this point. And it'd be nice to be able to trust a left-hander in concert with Albuquerque to kind of work with you late to get you through a particular part in the order, whether it be lefties or righties uh, consecutively, to bridge that gap to Soria. But you're right. It's piecemeal other than that. Nesbitt's been kind of a nice surprise in the spring, and he's held on here in a uh, kind of a supplementary role with the injuries they've had to to Nathan and Rondone. But it, it's going to be guesswork. And this is the part that I want to be careful with Tigers fans out there when you're analyzing Osmus and his uh, handling of the bullpen a year ago. Some of that you have to extend benefit of the doubt status to Brad because he can only go on what he's been given by Dave Dombrowski on the roster. He can't pull guys out of thin air, magically make them appear and and perform in a particular role. A a manager's going to look really bad when a bullpen blows it. You're going to say, why'd you put him in? Well, hindsight's 20-20. In a lot of cases, foresight with a lot of these guys is like, well, I don't think this is going to work out. And then you see the train coming down the tracks, and then, yeah, you get hit by it. But – for Osmus, you know, he can only work with the, the, the parts that he's given to put this engine together. And until or unless Dombrowski makes those additions to the bullpen, which I, kind of, I would have liked to have seen him go after maybe um, an Andrew Miller in the offseason a little bit more hard, or maybe at the trade deadline even when they got David Price go after Miller, to have that kind of arm in the pen. But for whatever reason, it's been the philosophy of this organization that the bullpen is a lesser need that's easier to fill and that can kind of get by with a patchwork pen but we know with our experience, uh, most painfully in the 2013 ALCS, that that is hardly the case. You need rock-solid parts in a bullpen in order to win in the postseason, and that's the ultimate goal for the Tigers. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. You need to have some lockdown arms outside of just the closer, and we saw that with some uh, some of the teams last year. The Orioles had a couple different options to choose from. The Royals obviously had several mm-hmm. dynamite options to choose from. So you knew once you got to the seventh inning, that's it. You know, you're not going to get past this this brick wall. It would be nice to see the Tigers add maybe just one more arm like that that you could feel, hey, between Soria and this mystery person is, you know, we've, we've got it locked down once you get to the seventh, eighth inning. Ryan, another major change this year, and one of the biggest surprises for me personally, uh, the team's defense has just been outstanding uh, in a way that it wasn't last year. Remember last year we were told this is the year that the defense is going to be better. We're not going to score as many runs, but man, this defense is going to prevent a lot more runs, and it didn't seem to come together last year, but this year, my goodness, uh, similar offense to last year, but uh, 
you know, with the worst defense, last year's team won 90 games. They've got the same kind of offense this year, but a much better defense. Where do you place them as far as, you know, how many wins are they going to pull up this year? Do you think this defense is worth a few more wins than last year? Absolutely. The way they're playing right now, that's worth conservatively, in my estimate, five wins. And you take a 90-win season and put it at 95, I mean, you and I both know, Hook, that's a big difference. That's probably winning the yeah. division going away at 95 wins. I think it's worth five games. And let's just go position by position real quick and, and analyze why this is the case. You eliminate Torrey Hunter, which at this point in his career was definitely a minus, if not a minus, minus right fielder defensively with his range and arm. And you shift J.D. Martinez over there, who's an adequate right fielder, an adequate to substantial upgrade over Torrey Hunter. Center field, you had traded Austin Jackson, who was a plus defender. They bring in Ghost. They platoon him with Rajay Davis, and so far that's worked beautifully, and I think it will continue to be a pretty strong position no matter who's out there. Ghost a little bit stronger defensively than Rajay, but Davis can still cover a lot of ground. And then the, the ultimate upgrade in the outfield was Cespedes and left. I thought Jonas had the, the tools, including the arm, to be a standout right fielder. He's more comfortable in left, as I mentioned earlier, to typically – What do you have in the outfield? You have your best athlete in center field, guy that can cover the most ground, fastest guy. You have your best arm in right field, a guy that can really gun it because you've got to make that throw from the right field corner to third base. Conversely, in left field, you never have to make a throw from the left field corner to first base. It's a long throw, requires a strong, accurate arm, and that's why your right fielders, a la ALK line, typically tend to be your best defensive outfielder with regard to arm. So left field, you put a plus arm, plus range covering, we've seen it already, Cespedes robbing the home run on opening day, he's a tremendous upgrade there, and now the outfield is suddenly a plus outfield as a result, residually just speaking about the pieces that I just mentioned. Now the infield, you had Cabrera at first, who I think is an adequate first baseman. I think a lot of people don't really give enough credit there. Ian Kins was a very good second base and had that a year ago. Nick Castellanos, to me, has been a much better third baseman. He had a, made a beautiful play yesterday, and he's made consistently yeah. strong plays throughout the season to this point, but why is that? The whole linchpin of this thing, and why I would say not just being prisoner of the moment with the game-winning walk-off hit yesterday, Jose Iglesias is your MVP through 10 games. Now, that might sound funny to say, okay, 10 games, I got you. But, you know, they go 9-1, and one, and how much of that, think about it, is due to what Jose Iglesias has done with the bat, on the base pads, defensively with the glove, making plays that very few shortstops can make in this game, and that has a trickle-down effect. It makes the job easier for Nick Castellanos to cover fewer, uh, less territory at third. It takes the burden off of Ian Kinsler up the middle. The double play turn has been phenomenal, and Iglesias has been central to that cause. Plus, oh, by the way, he's hitting 484 when he had a, a very putrid spring at the plate. Iglesias has been the, the biggest success story to this point, an exciting young player to watch. And, Hook, it just feels like we're just scratching the surface with him, and he has been the central character as to why the defense has been so improved. Absolutely agreed. And just anecdotally, after I got off the show with you on Monday, uh, on Monday morning's call when I called into the show, uh, I, I caught your promo for the uh, the FanDuel fantasy lineup. Mm-hmm. And I was interested enough in it that I went ahead and signed up for the first time and played my first couple games of fantasy baseball this year, just lineups, you know, head-to-head. So just anecdotally, I can tell you, I put Jose Iglesias on the team uh, on my lineup uh, probably four or five times. The guy has been just outstanding. And it's not until I viewed it through the lens of the fantasy lineup that you get you know, awarded individual points for performance on the field that it kind of stuck out to me. He's doing amazing things uh, offensively. 
I mean, we knew he was good defensively, but he's not striking out. He's getting on base. He's taking the extra base. He's stealing bases. He's, uh, like you said, he's been kind of a revelation in a way that we didn't expect. I don't expect that his average is going to stay up there. I think a lot of that is, you know, BABIP, and that's good luck, and that he's putting the bat on the ball and people aren't getting to it. That That's going to tail off. But, uh, you know, to have a guy up there that makes contact that consistently and doesn't strike out is going to be really, really good for that slot in the batting order. Um, and that maybe a related question. One quick point along those lines, what's sustainable about that? You talk about Babbitt and what is not sustainable, and maybe he's been a little bit lucky, and that might be true statistically. But the one thing that really stands out to me in 31 at-bats, the guy's walked three times, he's struck out once. That shows a Mm -hmm. great presence at the plate. Uh, He's seeing pitches well. He's hitting the opposite field. He's taking a pitch that he's given and not trying to do too much with it. You see him even in his post-game interviews yesterday included. That's a recurring theme, and I credit Wally Joyner for this. I really do because it's been up and down the lineup. Guys going the opposite way, not trying to do too much with a pitch, not rolling over on a pitch on the outside part of the plate and turning it into a weak ground ball, punching it the other way. I mean, these are all things that I think the Tigers hitters are finally subscribing to, catching on with. And Iglesias has been a poster child for that. And I think that part of it, at least, the contact, is sustainable going forward. He's not going to hit 484. But could he hit a lot closer to 300 than to 200? I believe that part could be true. Absolutely. We t- I, mean, I tell my Little League kids the same thing. It's just make contact. Because you don't know. Once yep. you make contact, anything can happen. It's much easier to get on base, you know, once you put the bat on the ball. And that, that's overstating it. But uh, to your point, you know, even if the BABIP, the luck kind of decreases and fielders start getting to more balls that he's hitting, I still say even in a situation where you have runners on base and you need to advance them or to score them, even with a ground ball to shortstop, Iglesias is the guy who's probably going to put the bat on the ball and not just stand there and strike out. And that's a good thing. All right, so along those same lines, Ryan, uh, to kind of wrap this up, who has been the biggest and you know most pleasant surprise for you on the Tigers roster this far? Well, the aforementioned Iglesias would have to be right at the top of the list, but uh, I would also include Anthony Ghost in that because you didn't know what you were getting. He was not an everyday player for the Blue Jays. They kind of wrote him off as maybe a Mendoza line type hitter with, yeah, speed and decent defensive skills. But he's been better, and he's only played in six of these ten games in a straight platoon pretty much with Rajay Davis, but they've both contributed. And I think going forward, ghosts like Iglesias at shortstop, center field is such a, a key clutch position, and his ability to play it, we've seen it, uh, flashes, glimpses in spring training where he showed off a, a plus arm for a center fielder. I'm excited about that. And his, the job that he's done at the plate has been rock solid as well. I'd like to see a little bit more contact. He does have nine strikeouts and 27 at-bats. But he's been a pleasant surprise. And I've got to throw into the mix as well uh, Nick Castellanos and his defense. That's another thing that stood out to me. He was widely criticized, including by Jim Price in the spring, and I think deservedly so. It's something that he's had to really work on. But I think the work is showing. It's paying off. And uh, going forward from there, you know, I'm very interested to see if maybe late in games – he earns the right to stay in defensively seventh, eighth, and ninth, and not have, say, Andrew Romine come in for defensive purposes. Absolutely agreed. Well, Ryan, I would love to do this all day. I could do this all day with you, I'm sure. <laughs> I know the feeling, but uh, we've been on for about 40 minutes now, and I, I want to give our listeners a break and let you get back to your uh, what sounds like a pretty busy Saturday for you. So uh, thanks again for joining me. Um hope you had a good time, and would you be willing to come back and do it again? Hook, always great talking baseball with you. I appreciate the invitation, and anytime you need me, you got me.
All right. Thanks, Ryan. Why don't you tell our listeners uh, where they can find you online? Online, they can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Schuling. That's R-Y-A-N-S-C-H-U-I-L-I-N-G. You can friend me on Facebook. I'm pretty open about that. And then uh, com. you can listen to uh, online uh, versions of podcasts. A conversation that I had with you is available on there for download. And then, of course, Monday through Friday, 6 to 9 a.m. at 107.3 WBBL-FM on the radio dial. You can listen online as well at WBBL.com. All right, Ryan, thanks so much for joining me. And again, always a pleasure. Hope to see you again real soon. You got it, Hook. Thank you. And that is just about going to do it uh, for another episode of the Bless You Boys podcast. Thanks again to Ryan Schuling for joining us today. A lot of fun talking with him. As he mentioned, you can find Ryan online at WBBL.com. Also on Twitter, at Ryan Schuling. You can follow me on Twitter at HooksFlyBYB, or you can get in touch with me on email at HooksFlyBYB at gmail.com. Always happy to hear from our listeners. Uh, comments, suggestions, hate. Well, I'll save the hate for later. Be sure to tune in next week at the same time for more recap and analysis of Tigers baseball. We'll see you then on the next Bless You Boys podcast. There's never been a corner like Michigan and Trumbull. Ha ha ha, that'll get him out of the old ballpark.